Tonight is November 5th, 2003. This is Wednesday. We're going to cover Matthew 15:21 through 28, and the title is Proper Perspective and Persistence That Prevails. As Christians, we must rightly understand our relationship to the promises of God. If we fail to do that, it's going to result in either arrogance or timidity, neither of which are pleasing to God. But if we rightly understand our relationship to the promises of, of God, then we will have a right perspective with the Word and our relationship. So that, that's going to be a theme tonight. As we start in verse 21, since this is very short, I mean, it's only seven verses we're covering tonight, I'll read it all the way through so that you understand the story, and then we'll go back and, and begin to look at what it means. <clears throat> Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, as we look at this proper perspective tonight, there's more to it than that. Your proper perspective, understanding how you relate to God, understanding how you relate to the promises of God, will give you a confidence that comes from a right understanding so that you're able to be persistent in your walk with God. Have you ever been kind of unsure of something and so you couldn't be as persistent or couldn't be as bold as you wanted to be? Have you ever misunderstood something and been too bold? Yeah, me, me too. You see both ends of this spectrum in, in Christianity. You'll see churches that can't pray for healing because they don't understand their relationship with God. They don't understand what they're entitled to and what they're not. You see other churches presume healing. When people aren't healed or presume God wants to heal somebody that perhaps he doesn't want to heal. And healing's an obvious one to see, but I mean, it's in a lot of, lot of places. Starting in verse 21, it says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Does anybody know where Tyre and Sidon are? One of the real advantages to getting to go to Israel is it starts to help you place geography. You know, if you've never traveled outside of your state in the United States, you don't care where the other states are. I mean, it's something you learn in school, but it doesn't mean anything. As you travel through them, though, you start to put them together. Somebody here in this room told me prior to going to Louisiana they couldn't have found it on the map. Well, that doesn't surprise me. It's because Louisiana wasn't important to them. Does that make sense? Well, Tyre and Sidon are in the northern part of Israel. They're on the coastline. Everything west of the Jordan, all the way down from Egypt up to uh, Syria, to today where, where Damascus is, and we're having some problems with uh, terrorists and stuff in Syria. Everything from the southern part of Egypt I'm sorry, the southern part of Israel, down by Egypt, up to the north where Syria is now, and west of the Jordan was once called Canaan. It's the descendants of the Canaanites. This woman, being from Tyre and Sidon, or the region there, uh, was a Canaanite. That's why she's called a Canaanite. They're still in Israel. They're just in the corner of Israel that, if you were looking at a map, would be the top left, the, the northwest corner of Israel. Well, why on earth is that important? Because one of the reasons that Jesus responds to this woman the way that she does is because of her nationality, because she's a Canaanite. Have you ever read this story or heard somebody comment on it and say, God, Jesus seemed to be harsh? He does, doesn't he? Now, we know Jesus can't 
didn't sin, but he seemed to be ugly to this woman. He ignored her. He called her a dog. You know, and then, then in the end, he had mercy. I've read a lot of commentaries about this. I've heard a lot of people talk about it. And the best anybody really comes up with is that Jesus was somehow testing her. Well, I don't deny that he may have been testing her, but that's certainly not why he responded to her the way that he did. You'd be hard-pressed to find another person in the Bible that Jesus treated quite like this and then came around and blessed. Let's look at her national heritage. If we understand a little bit, the Bible records this story in Matthew and in Mark. Here she's called a Canaanite from the region of Tyre and Sidon. And in Mark she's called a Syrophoenician woman. Phoenicia being along the coast north of Israel. And uh, Syrian being that same area just a little bit east. The Bible, what I'm getting at, is goes through great lengths to show where she was from and what her heritage was. It didn't just say a woman. It, it described her. And there's a reason for that. The Canaanites are an interesting group of people. Let's look at Genesis 9. Starting in uh, verse 24. Y'all know this story. This is after Noah has gotten off of the ark. Uh, Eight people saved in all. Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Plus each of them had wives. So there are a total of eight. And Noah's youngest son, Ham, dishonored him. He dishonored him uh, while Noah was in a drunken state. Now, that's another teaching in and of itself, but the end result of Noah being dishonored is this coming statement, starting in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. So we've got three people here that are being spoken of. Japheth, Shem, and Canaan, right? Who ended up on the negative end of this uh, proclamation? Canaan. Cursed will Canaan be. He'll be the slave of Shem, the slave of Japheth. Regardless what you believe about this, and I've heard people twist this into some weird racist kind of comments. The bottom line is, the nations that would come from Canaan had a curse from God on them. Their national destiny would be that they would be the slaves of both Shem and Japheth. One of the topics that we're going to study tonight as we look at this perspective, as we look at persistence and prevailing, is that nations have destinies, just like people do. For instance, our friends that were missionaries in Germany are well aware of the prophecies that speak about Gomer, the ancestors of today's uh, Germany, participating in a revolt against Israel. The Bible speaks about Gomer doing those things. Germany is destined for that. The nation itself will do it because God said they will do it. But each individual German has a choice whether they will participate in their national heritage or not. So this teaching tonight is going to be intertwined with predestination and what that is and what it means. But this woman who was a Syrophoenician or a Canaanite was cursed. She was cursed because she came from a people group that were cursed. That doesn't sound very fair, does it? Really doesn't. Turn to Genesis 15. Let's look at some of the reasons for the curse. On that fair note, Jeremiah and Paul had some interesting things to say about God being a potter and us being the clay and him having the right to make things of noble value And also of ignoble value. The thing is, even if you... Please turn that off. Even if you were destined for something that is not noble, 
Even if that's your destiny, in Christ you can escape your destiny. Our last Sunday's message was about everybody having a calling from birth. Individuals have a calling. There are things we're supposed to do. Well, so do nations. But you're not condemned to a certain destiny. You may have been born to idolaters. You may have been born in a family that hates God. But you don't have to stay in that condition. Are we in Genesis 15 yet? In Genesis 15, there's an interesting statement. This is when God is making a covenant with Abraham. And the ram, the heifer, and the dove all are a part of a sacrifice that God passes through the center of. And Abraham goes into a deep sleep. And picking up then with the Lord speaking to Abraham in verse 13 of chapter 15, says this. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites were the strongest amongst the Canaanite peoples. God was telling Abraham, the man of faith, in advance. There's a people who are in this land who are sinning and sinning at a rate that's displeasing to me. It's not yet reached the place where I'm going to do something about it, though. Your people are going to go be mistreated for 400 years. Then they'll come back and the land's going to spit these people out. So the kind of people this this Canaanite woman came from were a kind that were cursed by God and a kind that were building up God's wrath for themselves over a period of hundreds of years. That'll get a little clearer as you turn to Leviticus 18. Continue to hang a right in your Bible. Leviticus 18, starting in verse 23. I just picked this one because I thought it might make the biggest impact on you. Do not have sexual relations with an animal or defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so that I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. The people, the Canaanites who were there before the Israelites, whose sin had to reach a certain measure before God threw them out of the land, the people this woman we're reading about Matthew descended from, were so vile that not only... Did they hate God and have their own gods? But they were having sex with animals. By the way, today, and I don't care how politically unpopular this may be, today, when you watch the news and you see people blowing themselves up in Israel, killing Jews, the majority of those people who are doing that are the descendants of the Canaanites, the people that God said you should kill. And if you don't kill them all, there'll be a thorn in your side forever. Well, they are a thorn in their side. But you watch. In our lifetime, we will see sympathy for these people grow. And more increasingly, you'll see the attitude that it's the Jews who are the uh, root of all of our problem grow. And that's the spirit of the Antichrist. But that's another message. This woman was cursed. She came from a cursed people, a people who were building up wrath for themselves, a people who were having sex with animals, amongst many other things. One last scripture on that note is in Deuteronomy 18. Just wanted you to have an idea, one reason why Jesus responded to her the way that he did. We have a tendency this side of the cross to say your nationality doesn't matter, your heritage doesn't matter. It does. It does. Being a Jew means something. Being a Gentile means something. It's only in Christ that we're able to bridge the gap. But there's still value... In being both, and we'll look at that. 
Today, most people have no idea what the role of Israel is. They have no idea what our relationship to Israel or Jewish Christians are. You know, I like the term completed Jews for the idea of a Jewish Christian. But what do we as the Gentile church call Christians who happen to have a Jewish background? Messianic. We're big on these titles, right? They have to be. We're Christians, but they're Messianic Christians. Really, they should be Christians and we should be called Gentile Christians. This thing revolves around them. We're we are the outsiders from the nation that was not blessed, not them. That's part of this perspective tonight. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, says, When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Again, these are the Canaanite nations. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, or engages in witchcraft. Now, if he's saying don't learn to imitate these things, that's because they're going on there. Or cast spells, or who's a medium, or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. Why did God drive out the Canaanites? Because of these detestable practices. You know what's interesting? We just studied Josiah, didn't we? We just looked at Josiah Sunday. Everything here, everything just mentioned in this chapter, the Israelites were guilty of doing later in their history. And you know what God did to them? He threw them out of the land. You want to know why Israel went into a Babylonian captivity? Because they did the same things that the nations before them did. The exact same things. And God's not a respecter of persons. It, it, <laughs> it's okay. It's true that God has favored Israel. But when Israel became guilty of the same sins that the Canaanite peoples were guilty of, they received the same punishment. So that God bound all men over to disobedience. It was proven that those he favored and those he didn't show special favorship to were all guilty of sin. And that's that's a theme in Romans that we're going to get to. We will probably close with. So are we abundantly clear at this point that this woman who came to Jesus, who is asking for help, comes from a nation that's cursed, from a nation that uh, both opposed Israel and God opposed the nation? Is everybody clear on that? Okay. Then let's get back to Matthew 15. We'll start in verse 22. Tell me when y'all are in Matthew 15. When I say understand or have a right perspective... Listen to how this woman approaches Jesus. Sometimes in Christianity, we act like God is a cosmic genie. And He's just there to fulfill our every whim. Lord, I want. Lord, I want. Lord, I want. We even, in our charismatic realm, have worked out these little formulas. If I do this, then God has to do this. That's insane. It's insane because... It is a total wrong perspective of your relationship with Jesus. Your relationship is one based on mercy, not rights. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It is based on mercy, unmerited favor. Make sure y'all are awake. Can you say it with me? Unmerited favor. That's what mercy is. It's unmerited favor. Have you ever heard somebody say, the Lord's word won't return void, so if we confess this, then God has to do this? That's wrong. Friends, that's wrong. For it to be God's word, even if it's written in the Bible, he has to inspire it. He has to inspire it in that moment that it is spoken. Otherwise, it's just word. And let me give you a great example. The Bible says Jesus wept, right? You can confess that all day long. You can't get Jesus to cry in the third heaven right now. Even though that's God's word and it says it. Because God's not inspiring that speech for you in this moment now. You can confess it till you are blue in the face. It will not happen. That seems silly. I know it does. But think about how these things are applied both to prosperity 
and to healing. If you do this, then God has to do this. That's forgetting our place. It is totally forgetting our place because we need to approach God much like this woman did, realizing that our background is one of a curse. We all were birthed in sin. We all were estranged from God. We more than anybody, because as far as I know, there's not a full-blood Jew in this room, and if you were, it's probably not good that you'd know it would just puff you up, you know? Starting in verse 21, we're going to get to verse 22 here. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out. Not politely asking, you know, not whispering. Not like the Jewish leaders came to Jesus where they came at night, you know, scared somebody would see him or come only to test him. She's crying out. You need to picture a woman who is desperate. You know, there's a baby in here tonight. If that baby were sick, do you think her mama could get desperate? I had my child couldn't breathe not all that long ago. I was ready to tear arms and legs off to get a doctor to help my child. I know what it's like to feel that urgent, do something to... Well, this woman's come to Jesus because her baby, her child is sick. Do you think she might be a little desperate? A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out. Now, this Canaanite who's estranged from God, from a cursed nation, what does she say? Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, when she says Lord and she says son of David, what's she referring to? Come on, church, y'all are supposed to know the promises of God. When somebody says son of David, what are they referring to? All right, we got Jesus and what? Jesus was the son of David. So, yes, that's right. But the Messiah, all three of you are right, and this is how, okay? The term son of David would apply exclusively to the Messiah because it was given to Israel, the promise, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 17, that one would come to the house of David. This one would rule... Israel forever. Forever. There's a problem, though. What would he rule forever? Israel. Didn't say anything about him being a Canaanite king. He would be the king of the Jews. This is a bit like your neighbor's kid coming to you and saying, Hey, great parent. Yeah, you might be a great parent, but you're not that kid's parent. She was appealing to the king of Israel for help. But what's remarkable about that? She wasn't even an Israelite. She recognized their king when they did not. You remember Jesus just went 15 rounds with the, uh, 15 rounds with the Pharisees, the first few chapter, or first few verses of this chapter. And now Jesus has gone to a region where a Canaanite shows up, she says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She appeals to him as the Messiah, the king of Israel. And does she ask for something she's entitled to? Now, let's talk about this perspective here for a minute. When John the Baptist dealt with the Pharisees early on in the book of Matthew, he told them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, what? We have Abraham as our father. See, the Jews that were in leadership thought, we are entitled to the blessings of God because we're Jews. It's our right. I'll tell you what, they were partially right because these things were promised to the Jews. They were. They were promised. But something was wrong with their attitude. So John the Baptist said, hey, God can raise up stones to be the descendants of Abraham. He can make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks right here. He doesn't need you. They acted as if God needed them to fulfill a promise. Have you never seen such arrogance in the church? Oh, I have. As if God's promises depended upon them? As if God needed them for something? You remember the parables teach you? That when you do what is required of you by your master, you're not expecting a reward because that's your job. 
Do you remember the parables teach that? But it's lost sometimes in the kingdom today. We need to have a right perspective. Something else, don't forget this. In 2 Samuel 7, 23 through 26, let's go ahead and read that. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if the woman was quoting 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 17, about Jesus being the son of David, that she also knew what was five or six verses after that? I mean, is that a fair assumption or am I off my rocker? Okay, is anybody awake but Mandy? Listen to this. When David gets this promise from the prophet that they call a revelation, because this was a revelation to him. It was not just a promise. God expanded this in his mind. He understood what this meant. He prays to God. And in verse 22 of chapter 7, after receiving the promise that his descendant, his son, would sit on the throne forever, this is what he says. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. And there is no God but you. As we have heard with our own ears, and who is like your people, Israel? Hear this. The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself. How many nations did God go out to redeem? One. So there was one nation among all nations that God destined to be redeemed. You understand that? Just one. What does that mean about all of the other nations? They were not destined to be redeemed. Say, oh my God, but that's not fair. Well, you need to listen to what Paul said and Jeremiah said. God has the right to raise up a nation for a noble purpose or an ignoble purpose. Now, people like Calvin, John Calvin, pretty much the father of Presbyterian theology. I think the Baptists borrowed a bunch. Everybody borrowed a bunch from Calvin because a lot of it was right has taken this to the extreme that, Mandy, don't you witness to Jan, she might not be saved and that would be disappointing to her. Because it's all worked out before you were born. That is not true. God speaks this way of nations, not individuals. And here's what proves that. Go back to Matthew 15. This woman who comes to the king of the Jews, the one nation that God himself redeemed, had a problem. She wasn't a Jew. So she couldn't appeal to him on the basis of, hey, I'm a Jew, I'm one of your subjects, I need your help. She appeals to him solely on the basis of, I understand who you are. You're the king of the Jews and I need your mercy. As opposed to a a Jew who might think they had a right to this. In verse 23... Well, starting back in 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now, when this woman shows up, she knows the Jews don't like her. Jews wouldn't even eat in the same room with her. She was unclean. You know how they referred to these Gentiles? Dogs. Incidentally, do you know how Paul refers to Jews? Later, who are trying to bind people over to the law? It's in Philippians. Dogs. You find out that a Jew is one who's a Jew inwardly. You know what else you find out? A dog is one who's a dog inwardly. You get to decide whether or not you'll be a child of God or a dog based on your actions towards the king. This woman's actions are going to prove she's a child, not a dog. Though she comes from a nation... Of dogs. Verse 23. Jesus did not answer her a word. How many times have you set out to pray? You said, Lord, I need your help. But because you didn't get an answer right away, you just give up. Jesus didn't answer this woman a word. If he's not right there holding us, patting us on the back, telling us how wonderful we are and blessing us every moment. We give up right away. I was talking with somebody today at lunch about the idea of a first-class Christianity that escapes all of the tribulation and a second-class Christianity that stays for the tribulation. 
I can absolutely assure you that if that garbage were true, if that were true, we would not be the class that escaped. There are people around the world that have learned to prevail in their faith because they were dependent upon His mercy. They would not give up until they got what they were after. In prison, teeth pulled out, broken bones, whatever it is. They love Jesus. We give up on Jesus the moment that we don't get the blessing that we hope we would get. We need to learn from this woman's perspective. She knew her background. She knew what she was asking this king. Why didn't Jesus answer her though? Turn to Romans 9. Baby's wound up tonight, huh? Romans 9, 1 through 5. Get this. Now, if I could tonight, if this were not a Wednesday night, I might put you through the suffering of reading from 8 all the way through 12, because that's what's really necessary to understand this. But since it's a Wednesday, and your eyes are already glazed over, just about maxed out with the total amount of teaching you could receive on a Wednesday. We're going to try to narrow this down. Why didn't Jesus answer her? Verse 1 of 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Get this. Theirs. Not anyone else's, theirs. That theirs is T-H-E-I-R-S. Those of you that are well-schooled, that is possessive. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Nobody else's. Israel was adopted as God's son. Exodus 4.2 says it. Theirs was the adoption as sons. Theirs, the divine glory. The covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. They belonged to Israel. They were theirs. So why didn't Jesus answer this woman? He wasn't sent to her. Oh my gosh, what are you saying God didn't care about the Gentiles? No, He very much did, but there was an order to his plan. Have we ever gone out there? Have you ever gone out there meaning well and told people, God loves you. If you just be saved and you beg people to get saved, what if it's not God's timing for them to get saved? This was not the time for Jesus to bring his light to the Canaanite people. It'll blow you away. You read the book of Acts. Paul wants to go into an area and the Holy Spirit says, no. Well, were there any soft-hearted people there that could be saved? I assure you there were. God destined that that was not the time. Now, you say, but that's not fair. What about those people? Well, you take that up with God. You be careful who you say is not fair. Who are you, little bitty man, to say that great big God is not fair about something? You better trust that he's smarter, wiser than you are. That's why it's so important that we be led by the Spirit. Sometimes our reasoning is not right. You think about the Asian peoples of the world. For the most part, they're untouched by the Western gospel. How is it fair that we've had this for thousands of years and they're still entrenched in Buddhism? In Zen and all of those other things. Not sin, but Zen, which happens to be sin. Yeah, so is California. How is that fair? Well, God has destined that certain nations would play certain parts. And you know what? Nations are made up of individuals. Now, he's also said that he will have a remnant from every nation on earth. Why didn't Jesus answer this woman? Well, Matthew 10:5, he told his disciples, do not go to any of the Gentiles. Instead, go to the lost sheep of Israel. He didn't answer this woman because she was not an Israelite. Now, did God have in mind to get the gospel to Gentiles? Oh, yeah, it was prophesied over Jesus when he was born by Anna and Simeon. You can read it in Luke. It was prophesied over Paul when he was saved. It was prophesied in Isaiah. Get this. Turn to Matthew, or Genesis 15. Genesis 15. 
No, Genesis 12. Lord, Buzz would shoot me if he heard me misquote that. This is probably the most read chapter in my whole Bible for many, many years. It was Israel's right to receive. It was not the right of the cursed Canaanites to receive. It was not their right. But this woman's understanding, this woman's reaction, it makes all the difference in the world. First, we're going to read chapter 12. This is the call of Abraham of Genesis. Verse 2. I will make you, the you being Abraham, into a great nation. The nation he's talking about is Israel. You can put that together from 2 Samuel 7 and a million other places in the Bible. But I won't treat you like you don't know anything about the word. You know that nation's Israel. And I will bless you. So he's going to make Abraham into a great nation, Israel, and he will bless him. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Or whoever curses you, I will curse. Canaanites cursed Israel. They resisted them every step of the way. So they were cursed. But glory to God for this last verse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Canaanites cursed Israel, so they were cursed. It was destined that they be cursed. All the way back from Ham's youngest son, Canaan. As a nation, they were cursed. But God said, through Abraham, he would be a blessing to all peoples on the planet, regardless of what nation they came from. So which kind of people is it that gets blessed then? If it's not just determined on your national heritage, if you can be a Jew who has the right to be adopted as a son and miss it, and you can be a cursed Canaanite and receive it, then what must it depend upon? Go back to Matthew 15. I realize this is not a nice, neat little Sunday school lesson, but this is the theme that the Bible is about, and it is the most misunderstood thing in the Christian church today. Nobody seems to understand how we relate to Israel. I mean, they don't. I don't think that's by coincidence or accident, you will find out from reading the book of Romans that your sole purpose for existence in the plan of God, your sole purpose for being called saved, the good works you're doing in advance, all of those things that we teach about is for one purpose, to make Israel envious so that they might be saved, so that God will be proved to true, true in every man a liar. Well, if you don't know about Israel, you don't care about Israel, you think that they're just here to suffer while you're blessed, then how on earth are you ever going to make them envious? If God's desire prior to removing the Antichrist is to see a revival in Israel, and he can't use the American church to do it because they don't understand, then what use are we? Everybody loves Paul. Everybody does. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. It was him who said, I make much of my ministry to you Gentiles, that I might arouse some of my own people to salvation. The two most ignored statements Paul ever made are that one, and I speak in tongues more than you all. Those are the two most ignored statements Paul ever made. And you know what? You can't read not one of his letters without seeing both of those elements in them, if you have eyes to see. If you're blind and want to stay blind, you don't have to see it. You can just pick out the stuff you think applies to you. Y'all in Matthew 15? This is what this woman said that is so beautiful. I mean, might be one of the most beautiful lines in the entire Bible. Verse 24. He answered her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. Do you know what that is? Lord, help me. You sing it. You sing it all the time. Mm, Blessed be the rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. What's the word? Hosanna. Hosanna is Lord save me. This woman who's a Canaanite from a cursed nation not only sees he's the Messiah, she's crying out to him, Hosanna! Lord save me now! I need you! Help me! Was that the reaction he was getting from his own people? No. You want to move God's heart? doesn't matter what your background is. You need to have a right perspective. You need to know that He's not beholden to you for anything. 
It's only out of his mercy when he sees you have a right heart that he does anything for you. In our charismatic teaching where we've taught we're the children of Abraham and that we're entitled to the blessings of God and all of those things, there's a danger. We can become charismatically arrogant because he's given you gifting, because you see his blessing. You begin to think that you deserve it, that you're entitled to it. That if you only have a hundred instead of a thousand, something's wrong. God's just not coming through for you. That's great presumption and great sin. It really is. I wanted to, it was that TV over there, but it was in a different house. I wanted to pick up a chair and throw it through it. I heard a man say that the drug dealer's car should belong to you. And don't you want what the world has wealth-wise. And God owes it to you. There's going to be a transferal of the Wealth of the wicked to the righteous. No, I don't want it. I don't want it, not a bit. I I hate it. And certainly God doesn't owe it to me. Listen what this lady says. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He had a blessing and a message for Israel. The Canaanites were cursed and were supposed to be their slaves. It was not right for him to take away from Israel and give to her. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You find that the group of people that get what they need from God, not what they deserve, what they need from God, are the ones that are willing to view themselves as dogs The woman at the well that Jesus was so open with, she knew she wasn't a good woman. The woman caught in adultery in the book of John, caught in the very act, she knew she was guilty. Jesus was so compassionate upon those that understood they needed his help. And he was so hard on those that said they didn't need it. This woman changed Jesus' mind. In a moment, if it's possible to do such a thing. But you understand whether that's a figure of speech or not. She overcame her national disadvantage by her heart. Her perspective was, I'm a dog. You're the king. I need your help to save me. And I need your mercy. Friends, you get anything you want from God if that's your attitude. Anything. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Let me ask you something. As Gentile Christians, do you see yourselves as eating the crumbs that have fallen from Israel's table? Or do you see Israel as an afterthought, eating your crumbs that have fallen from your table? Well, when God's through blessing us Americans... After the Israelites have suffered, after they've been put through hell on earth and stand against the Antichrist and all that, then they get to join in our blessing. Do you see how backwards that is? Do you see how wrong that is? Talking about this perspective that the kids get fed first and then the blessings come to the others. They are the natural children. We're the wild olive shoots grafted in. We need to go to Romans 8.28. Everybody can quote this scripture, can't you? Yeah. We're going to finish up in about ten minutes. That will make this teaching under an hour. In Romans 8.28, you've been taught this scripture applies to you. And it does in as much as you've been grafted into Israel. But to understand this scripture and to not fall into Calvin's error... And some of you that, not in this room, but somebody here in this tape might go, Oh my God, who is he to say John Calvin made an error? I'm nobody, but I place God's law above the traditions of men. That's what we learned earlier in Matthew. And Calvin's just a tradition. You know, he, he was not the inspired speaker that people claim he is, to where they camp on his teaching and never moved. It's wrong. To understand the book of Romans and understand this, you need to know the writer is coming from this perspective. There were Jewish Christians, completed Jews, who were persecuting Gentile believers within this church, saying that 
they both needed to have their spirit-filled walk accompanied by the law and needed to keep Jewish customs. There were also Gentile believers in this church that were flaunting their freedom, the fact that they didn't have to do these things in the face of the Jews. Paul has spent the previous chapters hammering, I mean absolutely sledgehammering, the Jewish Christians as that they're not better than the Gentile Christians. And now he's at a point where he's concerned that they might become discouraged. And listen to what he says. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You've been taught that's you. I apply it to me. And truthfully it does. But that is not the way this is written. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, if this not making sense yet, it will when we go to Romans 11. But what, what you need to know before we switch to Romans 11, those he predestined and he foreknew were the nation of Israel. And so when he says, and we know that all things, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, he's talking about even in Israel's present hard state where Gentiles are being grafted in and it looks like Israel is the enemy of the gospel, God will work in that for the good of the nation because he foreknew them. He predestined the nation to be saved. Now, I realize that that's not all self-evident from, from this scripture, but you're going to see. Flip over to Romans 11. Y'all give me a few more minutes to finish this up. Starting in verse 1. Now, you want to be thoroughly blessed? You guys start in 8, verse 1, and read through 12. But since we can't do that tonight, we've skipped some. Starting in verse 1 of, of 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? Did he reject Israel? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, Calvin would have you believe that an individual was foreknown. That's not at all what this is teaching. The nation of Israel. Second Samuel 7.23 says it. Quite a few verses say it, actually. Romans 8.28 says it. And now Romans 11 says his people whom he foreknew. And in the context, there is no way to honestly come up with anything other than Israel. Paul said, I myself am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. Did God reject his people whom he foreknew? Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. Why do you think Paul quoted that? Because Paul could feel like he was the only Israelite who was saved. They're trying to kill Paul. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. It is God's grace upon the nation that there will always be a remnant in Israel that are reserved for God. They were foreknown. They were predestined. Some number of Israelites will definitely be saved. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace, would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. Now get this. There are a group of people like the Canaanites out there who are cursed by God. It was not their national blessing to be saved. But then there's a nation who it was their national blessing to be saved. And what did God do to his own nation? Gave them a spirit of stupor. Well, why would God bless one nation for them to be saved, leave all the other nations as cursed, not blessed? Why would he do that? Well, keep reading. We'll find out. 
And as David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so far as beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches were their fullness? Right. I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The fact that Israel rejected Jesus, he gave them a spirit of stupor. He let his teaching become to them rule upon rule, precept upon precept, so that they valued tradition more than they valued God. He allowed that to happen to his foreordained, foreknown, predestined people so that you would have a chance to get saved. You were already proved guilty of sin. You were outside of God's economy. Then his people who were supposed to be holy were bound over to sin as well. They were shown to be just as guilty as the nations like Canaan that they had gone before them so that all men were shown to be equally sinful. And everybody would understand it was by grace you were saved, not a heritage or a birthright. Well, is there an advantage in being a Jew then? Well, sure there is. The, the law came through you. The, the word came through you. Your heritage is the very lineage of Christ. So there's an advantage in every way, but you're still saved the exact same way a Gentile is. You still approach God in the exact same way a Gentile does. This where this gets really good, though. A few more verses, and we've got another seven minutes. If some of the branches... I'm sorry, we need to uh, start in 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Friends, when Israel accepts the gospel, it will trigger the resurrection. Okay, people are waiting for a rapture any moment. They're saying when the last people group on earth hears the gospel for the first time in the 1020 window, when it when those people hear about Jesus, he'll return. No, it's when Israel receives the gospel that the resurrection of the dead occurs. That's what that verse means. Is it any wonder that the church is confused then? The devil intends for you to be confused about Israel. Getting back to perspective, though. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, the first apostles were first fruits, they were holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast. Boy, that's a message to the church today. You Gentile believers, don't boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, it's not a Gentile thing. It's a Jewish thing. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. You remember I said improper perspective? Breeds arrogance or timidity? Well, the Gentile church has become arrogant because we don't understand our place. So much so that the Jews living in Israel today, half the time, don't even realize Jesus was a Jew. They see him as a Gentile God. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Israelites, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. That attitude that the Syrophoenician woman had, Lord, we want the crumbs. We'll, we'll take the crumbs that fell from the table of Israel. That's, that is the kindness that you have to continue in. If you don't, if you have unbelief and a wrong attitude of the heart, you'll be cut off just like Israel was. They were cut off because of unbelief. And not all Israel, just those who didn't believe. 
Otherwise, you also will be cut off. You can't be cut off of something you weren't once a part of. So the Baptists can roll that, put it in their pipe, and smoke it about once saved, always saved. You cannot be cut off of something that you were not a part of. That are to end that argument once and for all, regardless of what those people say that write books. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. If Israel does not persist in unbelief, then Israelites will be grafted in again. After all, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature, if you were a cursed people, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, if you a cursed people were made into a blessed people, how much more readily were these natural branches, a blessed people, be grafted into their own blessing, their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. There is a day in which the last Gentile will be saved, and then all of God's attention turns back to his nation. Now, when is the last time you heard that preach and it wasn't me saying it? And so all, get this, so all Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. He said, but not people don't believe on Jesus. There won't be a person left in Israel that doesn't believe on Jesus. Plague, famine, antichrist, fire, whatever it is will wipe them out. But every member of the nation of Israel, both spiritual and natural, will be saved and make up one new unit. As it is written, the the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is Paul's summary here. And this is this is the right perspective about Israel. As far as the gospel is concerned, there are enemies on your account. But as far as election or predestination, however you want to say that, is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. What does that mean? In a nutshell, that means God promised their forefathers they would be saved. So for that reason, God's working on their behalf to get them saved because he made a promise. He made a covenant. Theirs are the promises. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. People have tried to apply that to themselves. Well, God told me that I would have such and such. And I know I've lived like hell the last 20 years, but God's call and his gifts are irrevocable. (laughs) His call and his gifts are irrevocable for a nation. He told the nation certain things would happen. When people are disbelieving, they just don't get to participate in the nation's destiny. But the nation will still get that destiny. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God and have now received mercy as the result of their disobedience, just as you Gentiles were disobedient and at one time have received mercy as the result of them being disobedient, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God's intent through this whole elaborate plan was that the Jew who was blessed from birth would see themselves as disobedient in the same way that they saw Gentiles as disobedient. That the Gentiles would know they were disobedient. That all men would realize they were dogs and needed God's help and be willing to eat crumbs that fell from his table. You remember Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth's answer to King David? What what is your servant but a dead dog? Why would you have a dead dog like me sit at your table? That's the attitude that God wants. Not that you're ashamed and beat down. But that you know you didn't deserve not one bit of what he gave you. That you not act as if it were by your works, Jew or Gentile. That it was an act of mercy and salvation. That you were wholly dependent upon him. Now we've learned to say that and give it lip service. But in reality, we feel like we are better than other people. Today it's not that we're Jews and they're Gentiles. It's that we're Christians and they are lost. Those nasty people who do nasty things. Those dogs. 
You need to not forget the slop that God pulled you out of. Have we become so spiritually arrogant and lifted up that we can't touch those who are still in the mire? Walk into a church and stink. Walk into a church with alcohol on your breath and not shaved in a while. See if people look at you as lesser than them. Is that not what Paul's talking about? Is that not the same sin that Israel was guilty of? Don't us be guilty of that. Jesus hung out with whores and tax collectors for a reason. To show that the God of the universe was not too good to be around those that were leprous. And that one touch from him could make them whole. You know who supported Jesus' ministry? Women. The lowest people in, of standing in, in Israel. Who do churches go after, though, for their congregation? Whoever's important. It's not what Jesus went after, but it's what they did. Turn to Ephesians 3, and that's our last scripture. I told you we'd close in an hour, and I'm trying to be obedient to that. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. Starting in verse 2. Surely, 3-2, Ephesians 3-2. Sometimes for fun, take a concordance, look up the word mystery and read every New Testament occurrence of the word mystery. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, this mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. There's something that people didn't fully understand in the generations before Paul that now God has made clear. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery that the Syrophoenician woman was on to before she understood it, was though the promises were not made to her, God would include her in them if she had a right perspective and a right heart. What was equally confounding to the Jews is just because they were Jews, the promises didn't really belong to them. Because they weren't really Jews if they didn't have the right kind of heart. This is why Paul said all Israel is not Israel. You're only a Jew if you're one inwardly. Let me read something to you and then we'll close with prayer. The blessings were for Israel, who has experienced a hardening because of unbelief for a time. So that we Gentiles may be blessed too. But we must have a right perspective. That's found in Romans 11. Also the Israelites like us had to be shown to be unworthy. So that it would be by grace and not works that they were saved. That's also Romans 11.32. And then you see the mystery. This woman approached Jesus with a proper perspective. In other words she knew that what she needed was totally, totally unmerited. She was persistent because she believed God was good. She knew about the God of Israel. She knew He was good, and though she deserved a curse, she was asking for His unmerited favor, and she was persistent until she got it. She didn't give up. Because she had the right perspective, and she was persistent, her faith caused her to be treated as a son and prevail as a child of God. In her, you see a model better than in any Israelite that you read about of the way to approach God, of the way to get what you're after from God, and of the way you should think of yourself before God. Not as a dog, but as a son. But that you were a dog, and He's made you a son. I'm not telling you to pray, oh, Lord, we're just dear old sinners. You're not. You're a saint. But as a saint, you need to never forget the depths from which God pulled you. And you need to not look at others as less than yourself. You need to look at yourself as the lowest that God saved. 
Paul was more godly than anybody in this room, and he called himself the chief among sinners. He said he learned not to judge people according to the flesh. When you're riding your bike and you see people on a construction site, do you think of them as less than you? I realize they catcall. I realize they say things sometimes. But do you think of them as dogs? Or do you think of them as somebody that God might desire to save? I'm not suggesting you run over there and witness to them. I'm suggesting you hear from God and that you be open to the idea that people without suits on, that people that aren't already in church, might have a hunger for Jesus. They might need His mercy. They might have a demon-possessed daughter that God can, can heal so that they'll get saved. The church needs to get out of the salt shaker. The church also needs to understand their place. They need to understand our relationship to Israel or we cannot fulfill God's command. Jesus told the apostles they wouldn't finish going through the cities of Israel when he returned. How many people have been missionaries to Israel? Oh, we go everywhere else in the world. That's largely been because they've been blinded to the gospel. There is a day coming when that will be our total focus. And you know what? It's going to be hard for us Gentiles to get our eyes off the fact that we think God wants us rich, blessed, out of here, no persecution, only go to heaven, not inherit the earth, all of those things, and get together a gospel that the Jews could even receive. That's why the devil's opposed us with the false doctrine he has. Because the goal and plan of God is that the resurrection occurs when Israel is saved. Now, if you're in this room and you go do a family search and you find out you're 147th Jew and you start to walk around as proud of your Jewish heritage, then we'll, we'll read you the book of Romans. You know, I mean, that, that's not how this works. I've always found it curious. Well, I'm thinking of a young lady in Lafayette. You know, her mother was a Jew. She'd been born again just a little bit of time, but her mother was a Jew. Oh, well, her mother's a Jew. Let's get her to teach on the Seder, the Passover. She no more knew anything about the Passover than man on the moon. She'd never even been through a Jewish Seder. But because her mother happened to be Jewish, this Pentecostal church said, oh, well, let's get her. She's a Jew. That kind of ignorance is not blessed by God. It's really not. Just because somebody wears a beanie on their head does not mean that they know everything about God. Understand something. God went through great lengths to bind the Jewish nation over to disobedience so that it would be clear to everybody they're not better than anybody else. So that they're saved the same way that we are. But at the same time, we as wild olive branches don't need to act like this is our blessing and they get grafted into it. We need to understand they labored for generations to bring us the word you're reading. They labored for generations to get us the gospel that we're reading. They labored for generations to produce a Messiah. That was their blessing. All of us were people who were not looking for God and were found by him. That's the right perspective. If you prevail with the, in, and be persistent with the right kind of heart, God will come through for you in every way.